0: You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for The Gate Church in Lethbridge, Alberta. For more information, to contact us, or to support this ministry, please visit thegate.org. As usual, it's great to see you all here, and it's great to see those online. Glad you're tuning in. And also, as usual... We'll be continuing our sermon series through the Gospel of Luke. Uh, Most of our passage today actually is part of Jesus' famous and powerful sermon on the plane. We'll be going through his Beatitudes. And honestly, his sermon uh, stands on its own. It's better than any sermon that I can preach. Um, Of course, I'll still speak on it this morning. But before I I do that, we're going to read through it. And so I encourage you all to humble yourselves, even right now, and, and allow the Lord to speak to you as we read through this passage. So turn with me now to Luke 6. We're going to be starting at verse 12. And we're going, to, we're going to be going all the way to verse 26. So Luke 6, 12 to 26. All right. It says, In these days Jesus went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured, and all the crowd touched him, for power came out from him and healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said Blessed are you who are poor for yours is the kingdom of God Blessed are you who are hungry now for you shall be satisfied Blessed are you who weep now for you shall laugh Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the son of man Rejoice in that day and leap for joy for behold Your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. If I had to summarize the passage, simply summarize the passage, it would be this, that Jesus has come to usher in a new kingdom, an everlasting kingdom of blessing and joy, one, one which subverts and prevails over all the earthly kingdoms and power structures of this world. And in fact, we see the first clues of this kingdom being established when Jesus' 12 disciples Right at the beginning of the passage, he picks his 12 disciples. And the number 12 is significant here. It's a direct contrast, actually, to the 12 tribes of Israel, whom God had already established to be a nation or a kingdom set apart for him, chosen by him to be a remnant of his holiness and glory to the world. Right? But then in choosing 12 disciples, Jesus is demonstrating here that the old kingdom is passing away and that a new kingdom, a new nation, is being established in its place. Of course, the 12 young men whom Jesus chooses are also Jewish, because, as it says in the letter to the Romans, the kingdom was meant to come first to the Jews, and then to the Gentiles, to us, which would occur at the beginning mostly through the ministry of Paul, right? All right, the next clue or sign that Jesus is establishing a new kingdom establishing his kingdom come, is that these 12 disciples, as Luke notes, are then called apostles. And this is significant because the difference between a disciple and an apostle is that a disciple is someone who who follows after and learns from Jesus, whereas an apostle is someone sent by Jesus in his power and authority to, to go and establish his name and his kingdom. And we see them do that in the book of Acts, right? It's no wonder then that Jesus spends so much time in prayer before he makes this decision on who he'll call to be his, his 12 disciples, his apostles. In other words, he doesn't just randomly select these 12 guys. No, th- this is a big deal. This is a huge part of the foundation of his kingdom being established on earth as it is in heaven in that moment and into the future. Though when we think about Jesus being in prayer all night, there's certainly a side lesson to be had here, right? Which actually leads into the lesson of today. It's a lesson we've heard before over and over again, and yet we never seem to fully learn, which is that if Jesus, the Son of God, needed to pray before making a decision, then we need to also be in prayer and surrender before the Lord Before we go and make decisions in our lives. But again, the underlining lesson from this, though, is that through Jesus, the new and eternal kingdom of God is at hand, it's here. And though I'm sure even the disciples who had been chosen were, were still a little confused or a lot confused as to what this new kingdom would actually look like. And so the first lesson Jesus gives his 12 new disciples, along with everyone else who's, who's following and listening to him there, is, is to show them, by his own example, what this kingdom looks like and who it prioritizes. And so what does he do first? He chooses his disciples, and then what happens next? He heals And blesses and frees every person who comes to him asking for help. Every single person who touches him. Right? He has compassion on every single person in need. On that end, we can also safely assume that these people aren't all Jewish either. It says they've come from all over to be healed by Jesus, right? Even as far as Tyre and Sidon, which was definitely home to to some Jews, but mostly home to many different races of people, including Phoenician and Roman citizens as well. And so we see all these people coming to be healed, to to be freed by Jesus. And so right off the bat, again, Jesus' actions here are teaching his his disciples two things. First, that the kingdom of which, which they've been selected to be a part of, is a kingdom of supernatural power and authority, but that it uses this power and authority not to subjugate or lord over its citizens, but to serve them and lift them up. So again, right off the bat, Jesus is showing his disciples that the values and priorities of this new kingdom are completely different than the values and priorities of all the kingdoms and power structures of the world. It prioritizes not the rich and powerful and the popular, but rather it seeks out and lifts up the sick, the hungry, the broken, and the marginalized. And secondly, in in seeing Jesus show no partiality in whom he helps, It also shows them that this this is also a kingdom which is available and inviting to all people who come to him, regardless of race or age or gender and, of course, religious eligibility, which we learned all about last week. This is a kingdom that's based on unconditional love, on grace, mercy, compassion, and selflessness. A kingdom that perfectly resembles its king, Jesus Christ. But, of course... Every time Jesus does something in the physical, like feeding the poor or healing the sick, as we've been learning, it's, it's always meant to point us to a deeper spiritual reality, which, which he's also come to accomplish. And so this is when Jesus looks up at his disciples and explains to them how his actions in that moment represent and reflect what it means to live, not just our earthly lives, but spiritually within the kingdom of God. And this is when he begins to preach a sermon, which is known to us as the Sermon on the Plain, or in some Bibles it might be titled the Sermon on the Plateau. And, and for those familiar with the Gospels, you'll notice that the, the, the title here obviously mirrors or sounds similar to part of the, to, to Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount, as recorded in Matthew. And so it's possible that this might actually be a portion of the same sermon, which we can read in the Sermon on the Mount, or alternatively, it it could also be a record of a similar and shorter version of of the sermon which Jesus just preached at a different time, in a different location. And scholars debate this, you know, they go in circles about it, but honestly, in, in my humble opinion, it doesn't really matter either way. What's amazing about having four Gospels in the Bible from four different witnesses is that each record of Jesus's life and ministry gives us multiple different angles or perspectives, right? Kind of like when four people might see the same car accident, and they see it from their different viewpoints, right? They see the same event, but they all have different angles of it and remember different aspects of it. And and so we get that from the four Gospels, which is awesome. So even if it is the same message, or if it's a different message, doesn't matter. We, we can still actually learn different things from each account. But with that being said, a couple of years ago, we did do a whole sermon series through the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew. And so if, if you are hungry for more info or to go deeper into studying Jesus' teaching here, than I'm going to be going today, then, then I suggest going back to that series in our podcast because, because we, go, we don't do the whole thing at once, right? We, go, we actually go through it. But anyways, so whether it's the same message or a similar message preached at a different location, we can see both of the, these messages, Sermon on the Mount and Sermon on the Plain, they both highlight the fact that the kingdom of God is first and foremost a life of blessing. A life of blessing. And, and some of the, the Jewish audience listening to this, uh, along with many prosperity preachers today, may have interpreted this word to mean a rich and prosperous life in more of a material or financial sense. But is this actually what Jesus has in mind here? Not, Not likely, especially since he contrasts his four statements of blessings to the poor and downcast with four statements of warnings to the rich and popular which he calls woes, or as they would have interpreted in the 90s, whoa. Um, If you didn't grow up in the 90s, you won't get that. Uh, (laughs) Or watch Blossom. I didn't even watch Blossom, but everyone knows. Whoa. All right. (laughs) Come on. Come on. Anyways, just trying to lighten up the mood here. Man. Man. Anyways, I, I also read that in, in, in the literal Greek translation of the word blessed here, and some Bibles actually translate it like this. It, it actually means to be, to be happy, right? To be satisfied and happy. On, on that end, theologian Daryl Bach writes, the term blessed refers to, the, to one who is the object of grace and is happy because of it. Warren Wiersbe also writes, like people today, many of them thought that happiness came from having great possessions or holding an exalted position or enjoying the pleasures and popularity that money can buy. But Jesus describes happiness in terms just the opposite of what they expected. So to be blessed, to be blessed is to find happiness and satisfaction and knowing God. Our circumstances don't... Re, don't reflect that or change it to be blessed no matter what's going on in our lives to be blessed is to find happiness and satisfaction in knowing god and i should note though that you know if you're reading through the old testament you'll 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 note that god did promise material blessings and 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 prosperity to the israelites but of course that was within the old covenant when he established them into a temporary earthly kingdom our nation Right? which was actually meant to foreshadow the eternal kingdom of God that Jesus brings and establishes through his life, death, and resurrection. Besides, the material blessings at that time were only ever meant to, to remind God's people of the source and reality of their true blessing in knowing him. Right, Psalm 145, 146 verse 5 actually reminds them that blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. Or as Jesus sums it all up in John 17, 3, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. So, so above all, to be blessed is, is to find eternal happiness and joy through knowing God and his Son, Jesus Christ. And furthermore, Jesus teaches his disciples that the ones who experience that blessing are actually the ones who, who both acknowledge their brokenness and those who suffer or are reviled for his name. And, and you may have noted by now that this is not the way that we are taught to find happiness in our culture, is it? Not at all, not even close. This world teaches us that happiness is found in, first of all, avoiding all suffering and pain at all costs, <laughs> right? And secondly, that happiness is found in treating yourself or elevating yourself, right? That it's, that it's found in gaining wealth or prosperity or success or consuming entertainment and good food or in popularity, right? In other words, we're told by the world that the temporary things of the world can give us lasting happiness, but they can't. And they never have, and they never will. Think of this, how many social media influencers have actually sunken into deep depression and loneliness? They've made a living and gained a following by saying all the right things and pushing all the right buttons, literally and figuratively. They've become incredibly popular, and yet all the likes and followers in the world couldn't keep them happy. And think of how many millionaires have confessed or celebrities have confessed that, that no amount of wealth was ever enough to satisfy them or fully make them happy. They always needed more. Yet even so, we still live in a world and are a part of a cultural climate which celebrates the rich and powerful the celebrities, the millionaires or their wives, the Oprahs and the Meghan Markles of the world, the Trumps and the Bidens, the pop stars, the social media influencers. We celebrate them, we give them our attention and our time, we reward them, we bow down to them, we follow their advice, and yes, we want to be like them. And so as citizens of heaven living in this world... We're constantly feeling that, that pull, right? Or that tension between two kingdoms. The kingdom of God and the kingdoms of the world, right? But this passage reminds us that true blessing or lasting happiness is found only in the kingdom of God through knowing Jesus Christ. Furthermore, that that. That those who choose to deny Jesus and trust in the world for their satisfaction through riches and power and greed and popularity and deception have already received the reward they've chosen. And they can't take it with them. He's telling them, if you choose to be full now, you'll be hungry later. Actually, one of the dangers of wealth or popularity is that, is that it does give us this false sense of independence. Independence. Right? It makes us think that we don't need to depend on anything or anyone, and, and even worse, it can make us think we're superior or more deserving or more important than those with less. Ultimately, our, our monetary success or wealth can make us blind to the reality that we are spiritually bankrupt. Warren Wearsby again writes, The four woes share a common truth. You take what you want from life, and you pay for it. If you want immediate wealth, fullness, laughter, and popularity, you can get it. But there is a price to pay. That is all you will get. Jesus says that being satisfied with them is its own judgment. And so this is a warning. right? A warning which resembles the prophets of old who were reviled for speaking like this. It's a warning for those who feel they don't need the blessing of the kingdom or for those who are interpreting their wealth and their material prosperity or popularity as a sign that God has more favor on them than others. Or as he says in Luke 12:15, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Or in Mark 8.36, for what does it benefit someone to gain the whole world and yet lose his life? Our life, our, our soul, is worth more than anything the world can offer us. Why would we exchange it? And so while it's the rich and popular who stand on their egotistical self-satisfaction and think they don't need help from anyone all the while losing their souls. In contrast to that are the poor who need a helping hand, the hungry who need to be fed, the sorrowful who need a reason to laugh, and the suffering who need a reason to carry on. They're the ones who are willing to come to Jesus for help because they know they need help and they have nowhere else to go. And Jesus, of course, has already demonstrated through his actions before this that he shows godly compassion and love by literally helping the poor and the hungry and the broken. That unlike the earthly kingdoms of the world, which lift up the rich and powerful, it's actually these marginalized people, the ones the world would consider untouchable or smelly or worthless or the lowest of the low, who Jesus actually considers the most valuable and also the most ready to receive his help. But on that note, Jesus' lesson here also seems to have a, a deeper, more spiritual connotation as well, as I noted earlier. In other words, it's unlikely that he's just making a, a flat-out socio-economic statement here, or that he's glorifying poverty as the truest form of holiness or piousness, or even as our means to salvation. In the same vein, I don't think he's saying that having money is sinful in and of itself either. The truth is that anyone who confesses and believes in the name of Jesus can be saved, rich or poor, slave or free. So he's certainly not saying that that all poor people will be blessed and that all rich people are going to suffer judgment. Rather, he seems to be using these socioeconomic characteristics and attitudes of the rich and poor within the earthly kingdoms in order to reflect the state of our hearts and attitudes toward Christ within the kingdom of God. Right? He seems to be saying that the difference between those who are blessed and those who receive the woes are those who recognize their need before the Lord and those who don't, right? Those who, those who have none and those who think they have it already. As we find in Matthew, Jesus actually adds on to the phrasing here when he says, those who are poor in spirit or those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, So there's a spiritual dimension here, right? And ultimately, I think he's telling us that this is about our internal attitude of the heart. He's calling us to have a spiritual or heartfelt position of humility and dependence before him, right? He's teaching us that that when we come before his throne of grace and we acknowledge our sin and our spiritual poverty and our hunger when we acknowledge our brokenness and our shame and our weakness before him, that's when he's able to meet our needs, right? It's, it's the poor and the hungry and the sorrowful and the suffering who are the ones who are ready and willing to receive help and be lifted up. Like the crowd, right, who came to him with their various sicknesses and, and needs in order to be healed. When when we have this heartfelt and humble attitude of faith and trust before Jesus, that's when we'll find He's waiting to bless us and heal our hearts and satisfy our souls and lift us up from the grave into new life. Those who are blessed and victorious within the kingdom of God are those who live. With a humble dependence and trust in Christ alone. Those who are blessed and victorious within the kingdom of God are those who live with a humble dependence and trust in Christ alone. But on that note, there also seems to be another lesson here. There's always multiple dimensions to, to Jesus' sermons. And there's another dimension here, which is that it seems like Jesus also may be implying that those who do follow him as citizens of his kingdom will also find that it will be costly and difficult at times, that it could or will cost us monetarily, that we will need to to rely on his provision and his strength, that that living as citizens of God's kingdom will bring us to sorrow and weeping at times. And that as we proclaim the name of Jesus in and through our lives, it might cause others to revile us or persecute us. And so Jesus also seems to be preparing and encouraging his disciples here by telling them that while they can expect seasons of hardship, this hardship will be temporary and that they won't be alone or without in the midst of it. That these trials and seasons of, of hardship in Jesus' name also come with the hope and the promise of the kingdom and a heavenly reward. So while worldly riches and, and fame uh, may be tempting by comparison, they're, they're not going to satisfy or, or bring true purpose or joy into eternity. Instead, you know, even if they're going through hard times, instead he's, he's encouraging them to remain focused and dependent on him. In the end, this sermon is a reminder that every citizen, the kingdom of God, his disciples, the church, us, right? We need to humbly depend on him in order to persevere and finish the race set before us, in order to walk in blessing, no matter what the circumstances. is. That our blessing is found not in things or in status, but in being with him, in being in surrender to him. And on that note, though, as citizens of this upside-down kingdom, it does fall on us, as it originally did for the apostles, to portray this blessed life, right? And make known the reality of this kingdom to the world, even if it does come with hardship or revilement. As John Calvin, or sorry, as R.C. Sproul writes, quoting John Calvin, it is the task of the church to make the invisible visible. We do that by living in such a way that we bear witness to the reality of the kingship of Christ in our jobs, our families, our schools, and even our checkbooks, because God in Christ is king over every one of these spheres of life. The only way the kingdom of God is going to be manifest in this world before Christ comes is if we manifest it by the way we live as citizens of heaven and subjects of the king. By the way, we live as citizens of heaven and subjects of the king. And Jesus just taught us how to do that and what it looks like. And first of all, then, making the invisible kingdom visible means, again, that we have to first be in surrender to the king to come before him with broken and contrite hearts, dependent hearts, right? So that he can lift us up, satisfy us, and empower us with his spirit and his joy to live for him. This also means resisting the temptation then to look to the temporary things of the world as, as our sole means of satisfaction and blessing. Can we have money and enjoyment And even popularity, sure. But we don't seek these things out for the sake of of elevating ourselves. right? And let's not forget that we can't take those things with us. That they're not the source of of our joy and our satisfaction. And if we try to make them that, they're going to fail us. And we'll become slaves to them. Rather, the more we've been given, actually, the more we're meant to give, right? Knowing that true satisfaction and blessing can only be found in surrendering to Jesus alone. And so we'll be willing to give the more that we have, right? We're also reminded here that Jesus assumes and expects his disciples to proclaim his name to the world, to preach the gospel to those who need to hear it, even if it means being socially ostracized or even persecuted on account of his name like the prophets of old. But in contrast to that, if, if we care more about being popular and, and getting social media likes, like the false prophets of old, who just wanted to impress their king so they said whatever they needed to say, for like them, we won't be interested in living a life that could get us ostracized or living a life which lifts up somebody else. But again, Jesus warns us that this is a self-serving platform which is quickly swiped from underneath us. And besides, no amount of likes on our Instagram page could ever compare to the way Jesus unconditionally loves us and rewards us. And ultimately, if we have experienced blessing and salvation and satisfaction and joy in Christ, we'll seek to lift up his name and not our own, no matter the cost. And and, and we won't feel like this is a chore, but that it's a blessing. It's a blessing that we get to partner with Jesus in this calling. It's why we're filled and empowered by his spirit. And finally then, to make the invisible kingdom visible means that we need to place value on the same things the kingdom of God values. That is, we need to follow Jesus' example here in helping and lifting up those in need. Right? So we should be giving to the poor, feeding the hungry, and comforting, or even weeping with those who weep. Right? To do the same things for others in the, in the physical, which Jesus has done for us in the spiritual. This is what it means to make the invisible visible. In this way, as we love others, and as we count others as more significant than ourselves, we're showing the world the kingdom of God, which Jesus came to reveal to us and establish for us. We're showing the world that to surrender and follow Jesus, to build our life upon his love, is to live a life of eternal joy and blessing. And I'm going to end there. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I I thank you so much for who you are, Lord. I thank you so much for, for this church, for what you're doing in this place. Lord God, I thank you so much that, uh, that you are the one that's building this church, Lord. And that without you, we do it in vain, Lord. And that's a reminder. That's a, that's a reminder for us that we need to be dependent upon you, Lord God. So Lord, I, I pray that you would, you would break down, down the walls of, 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 of the way that we serve ourselves, Lord God. That we would look to you and you alone for our satisfaction, Lord. That we would come to you in, in surrender, with with broken and contrite hearts, acknowledging our need for you, Lord God, knowing that you supply our need. Lord, help us to not chase after the things of the world but to chase after the things of your kingdom, Lord. Lord, and as we surrender to you, and as we surrender before you, Lord God, I pray that you would lead us into a life worthy of your name, that represents your name, that represents your kingdom. A life that leads others to know this this life of blessing which you've given us which you've won for us at the cross through your death and resurrection. So Jesus, even now we surrender before you. We give our lives to you. We acknowledge our need for you. And we give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. (music)